please stand for the reading of the gospel. We read from John's Gospel, chapter 13, beginning at verse 31. After Judas left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. Your children, I'm going to be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who loved us first. Do you consider yourself to be a loving person? How would you define it? If you had to write a little blurb about how loving you are on Facebook, what would you write in there? What does love look like, sound like, act like? I'm going to make a statement now that will seem cruel and unnecessarily offensive, and intentionally so. You are not loving, no matter what you think. You don't even know what love is, neither do I. Neither does anyone in the world. A statement like that demands proof, right? Well, here's a little proof. In the prayer of the day, we prayed, we begged God, make us love what you command. Why would we have to pray that if we were such love experts? We only pray for things we don't have or we are incapable of doing ourselves. When I asked you if you considered yourself to be loving, I'm pretty confident in guessing that your thoughts immediately went to your feelings and specifically your feelings for your family and your friends. I know that's because that's where, where my mind went too when I think, well, how am I loving? I think family and friends and feelings. But that's not the kind of love that Jesus is talking about here. That's actually a different Greek word. That's phileo. That's kind of affection, the natural affection we have for people we like. Jesus isn't talking about that kind of love here. He's talking about love of the will. Love that, that will overcome even not liking someone to, to do what they need, to do what is best for them. A third proof I would, I would offer that we don't know what love is, this world doesn't know what love is, is that some of the, the most wicked and most depraved things that are done these days are done in the name of love. The murder of the unborn. Those protesters that have been out the past couple of weeks, they seem like a really loving bunch, don't they? Same-sex marriage. That is not love. That is a perversion. A deviant behavior. Not exercising Christian discipline is unloving. Tolerating false doctrine and false religions is not loving. That whole idea exists, there's nothing loving about that. If you really love someone, would you really want them to follow a false religion that is only leading them to hell? There's nothing loving about that. We don't know what love is, and we better figure it out quick because our confessions say this. The fact that a person does not love is a sure sign that he is not 
justified, not saved. St. John puts it this way, the one who does not love remains in death. People who are not loving, who do not know how to love, are, to be blunt, still damned, still under God's condemnation. So we better learn what love is, and for that we need to look to Jesus. Our first stop on this quest to figure out love is at the foot of the cross. John spends roughly a third of his entire gospel detailing the final seven days of Jesus' life on earth. And John 13 verse 1 serves as kind of a summary of Jesus' entire passion. It says, Jesus loved his own who were in the world, and now he loved them to the end. And what did Jesus love for his disciples? Get him? It got him betrayed. Judas left because Jesus had forced his hand, forced him to decide between light and darkness. Judas chose darkness, and Jesus said, what you are about to do, go and do more quickly. Isn't that incredible? Jesus sparked the series of events that would lead, that he knew would lead directly to his condemnation by the church and his crucifixion by the state. And yet, what what does Jesus say about that? About the horror, the blood, the pain, the nails, the cross. What does Jesus say about that? Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. How does that work? How does the Son of God hanging, bleeding from a cross end up being to his glory and to his Father's glory? You have to understand that God has kind of a weird idea of what glory is. God's greatest glory is loving the unlovable, redeeming the irredeemable, saving the unsavable. You kind of understand why the world struggles to understand that kind of love, right? In our world, love must be earned. Those who are saved deserve saving. Those who are redeemed deserve to be redeemed. Those who are loved, well, they better deserve to be loved. But God and Jesus flipped that on its head. And not only did Jesus lay down his life for us, he laid down his life for us while we were still his enemies. Paul says God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is God's greatest glory. At the cross, that's where we see his glory. What greater gift could he give us than his son? What greater thing could he do to reveal his glory than than to save undeserving sinners like us? That's why if you really want to understand what love is, you have to start at the cross. See at that cross on Calvary. See God lifting the burden of sin and guilt and all your loveless words and thoughts and actions off of your shoulders and laying them on His Son. Listen to Jesus here saying, I'm not going begrudgingly. I want to do this for you. I want to give up my body and shed my blood so that you might be forgiven. More than that, look at the cross and see that not only are your loveless thoughts, words, and actions taken away there, paid for completely, but also loveless words, of, words and actions of others. We all have wounds on our hearts from the things people have done to hurt us. Maybe some of us have faced physical or verbal or emotional abuse. 
We need to look at the cross and see that even those sins are taken away, gone, wiped away forever. There really can be no conversation about love unless we start at the cross where we see God's unconditional love for us. And not only for us, but for the whole world. But a a conversation about love that starts at the cross never ends there. Do you notice how Jesus weaves justification with sanctification? That is what He has done for us with how we are to respond. He says, a new commandment I give you, love one another just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. Now what's the obvious question here? What's new about this command? Didn't Moses give a similar command 1,500 years earlier? Didn't he say on God's behalf, love your neighbor as yourself? Did you catch the two differences, though, between Moses' command and and Jesus' new command? First of all, is the standard by which we are to measure our love. Moses said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love others as much as you love yourself. Jesus raises a bar, though, doesn't he? He said, love others as much as I have loved you. That means that Jesus is telling us we must love others even more than we love ourselves. And didn't Jesus give us a perfect example? He laid down his life. Not for his friends, but for his enemies. Not for saints, but for sinners. While we were still his enemies, Jesus laid down his life for us. That is the kind of self-sacrificial love that Jesus expects us to show out of gratitude for him. The second difference is is the scope, or, or who we are supposed to love. Moses said, love your neighbor. And that's still true. Our neighbor is anyone in the whole world, anyone who is in our lives that that needs our help. We are to love that person. Jesus illustrated it so brilliantly in his parable of the Good Samaritan. But Jesus here says, love one another. Love one another. It's It's a very sad commentary on the state of the Christian church in our country and in the world. When, when you hear churches stumbling over themselves, bragging and boasting about how much good they do in the community, you know, feeding the hungry and housing the homeless and, and clothing the naked. But in the church, people don't even know each other's names. And if you don't know someone else's name, how can you possibly carry out your debt of love to your fellow member? How can you possibly do the things, the hard things that Jesus wants us to do out of love, like rebuking them? Reproving them, forgiving them, encouraging them, praying for them. How can you do any of that if you don't even know their name? Don't misunderstand. We still are supposed to love our neighbor out there in the world, but I think here Jesus might be commanding us to do something that's even more difficult, loving the people right here in this room. Loving the people who are sitting to our left and to our right. It's intimidating, isn't it? It's a high standard that Jesus sets for us. Back to our question. Are you a loving person? It's not mushy sentimentality that Jesus is commanding us here. He's commanding us to love, to be lay down our lives, do everything up to our lives for others, even when we don't, if we don't like them, and especially when they don't deserve it. Paul spelled out in detail what this love looks like, right? He says, love is patient, love is kind, 
Love does not envy, it does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not behave indecently, it is not selfish, it is not irritable, it does not keep a record of wrongs, it does not rejoice over unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, those words might sound fitting and natural and cute when they are read before a man and a woman who are just madly in love with each other at their wedding, right? You know, on, on a wedding day, you would think, I will never lose my patience with my spouse. I will never be irritable with them. I will never keep a record of all the things they do wrong. And how long does that last? Well, about after the amen of the service, right? And we start keeping a track record of all the things they've done wrong. These words from Paul that, that might look kind of cute, that if you, if you buy a card, you know, they're always written in kind of a cutesy, fun little font. These really are some of the harshest words of law in the entire Bible. This is not debatable. This is not something where we can twist Jesus' words. This is not a place where we can say, I know I haven't loved you as, as you command, and I haven't loved others as I should, but I've tried my best. Jesus doesn't leave that open. Paul doesn't leave that open. He says love and perfection is the standard. Now obviously, Jesus has set a standard that none of us will ever meet. And he even said, where I am going, you cannot come. What he's saying to his disciples, what he's saying to us here is that laying down a life for the sins of the world, that's not something we have to do. That's something only he could do. And he has done that. He has given us the perfect example of perfect love. But now he turns to us and says, love each other and you. And what does that look like? Well, let me cherry pick one of the, the descriptions of love that Paul gives us here. He says, love is not irritable. One of the devil's favorite tricks is to take God's greatest blessings to us and turn them or make them seem like they are curses. The question is, apart from the gospel in word and sacrament, what is God's greatest gift to us here at Risen Savior? You are. You are God's greatest gift after the means of grace. Every one of you. You are the people for whom Jesus died. And that includes the little ones that you're holding in your arms and crawling around at your feet and throwing their toys on the ground and spilling their Cheerios all over the place and squawking and making a, a noise and disrupting your worship, it includes them too. And the devil would love to turn that great blessing of children in church, which if you visit many churches in our country today, there aren't any children in church. What a blessing we have here, risen Savior, to have so many children in church. But the devil would just love to turn that blessing into a curse. And he's had some success over the years, hasn't he? The glares, the shaking of your head quietly, the, the nudging the person sitting next to you and saying, parents these days, they just don't know how to keep their kids in line. He's had some success. So as uncomfortable as it may be for all of us here today, we're going to apply this law of love to ourselves here. The, the law of love that says love is not irritable. As a mirror and as a guide. To both show us where we have fallen short and to show us how the Lord wants us to live. 
First of all, children. Children, listen up. Jesus loved you enough to die for your sins. He also loved you enough to give you parents who faithfully bring you here to sit at his feet so that you may learn about his love for you. Honor, love, and respect your parents. Love and honor them so much that as if you're loving and honoring Christ himself because Jesus says you are. Parents, everyone knows that no child is perfect and they will all have their moments and it seems ironically that all of their moments seem to come during this hour on a Sunday morning, doesn't it? Love the people around you more than yourself though. Don't let pride or laziness or complacency overcome your, your love for others by taking the tantrum, if it happens, outside of the, the glass wall and into the nursery that's built for that purpose. Love your children enough to discipline them, to tell them when their behavior is wrong, when it is bringing disrespect to the name of Christ. Love them enough then to forgive them and use those words, I forgive you and so does Jesus. Love them enough to show them how the Savior who bled for them wants them to live. And for the rest of us. Imagine if Jesus was sitting here in worship with us, sitting next to his Father. Can you imagine him? And he doesn't just look at your outward actions. He can read the very thoughts of your heart. And imagine him sitting there. Do you think he's glaring at you? Do you think he's shaking his head? Do you think he's elbow his father and say, can you believe sinners these days? Of course not. Jesus is here with us. He is in our presence and his arms are open to welcome us with his unconditional love and forgiveness, sins and all. And who are we to, to judge others? Who are we to shake our heads and glare and mutter and grumble parents, and children these days. Maybe a better thing to ask ourselves would be, how can I help parents these days? Because the blunt truth is that if a toddler, a screaming toddler who drops his toys or his cereal or is making noise, if that can set you off, if that can make you lose your temper, the problem is not with that child or the child's parents, the problem is with you. Boy, that's harsh, right? These cute, kind words of Paul don't sound so cute and kind when they're being spoken by the one who still has the holes in his hands and his feet who suffered and died and is looking right at you, right into your heart and is telling you, look to your left and to your right. Have you loved these people as I have loved you? It kind of makes you want to curl up in a ball and hide, doesn't it? Because each of us know that we have not loved others as we should, especially the people here, especially our own brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'll ask again, are we loving people? Can any of us with a straight face say that? Would, would any of us be willing to describe ourselves on Facebook or social media? Loving person, loving mother, loving father, loving husband, loving wife, when we know that's not true. And that's why we always have to go back to the cross. Because that is where we understand the reason why we should love each other, even when they are unlovable. Even when we don't like them necessarily. 
why we will lay down our lives, why we will sacrifice our lives and our comfort for the sake of others. We don't love children, don't get me wrong, we don't love children because they're well-behaved. We don't love our fellow members because they're so nice. You don't love your pastor because he's so charming, because most of the time these things are not true. There is one reason we love each other, it is because God loved us first. He loved us enough to allow our sins to cause his own son to be whipped and beaten and nailed to a tree and to suffer the depths of hell for us. He loved him enough, he loved us enough to make his son pay for our sins of lovelessness and then in return give us the perfect life of love that Jesus lived. God's love is not some mushy sentimentality that you're going to find on the front of some overpriced Hallmark card. It is love in action. Our world tends to measure love or describe love in cute pastel colors and and handwriting on on Hallmark cards and and mushy sentimentality and rom-coms and those types of things. Here's how God writes out his love. It's written in the metallic gray of the nails that were driven into his son's hands and feet and the crimson blood that flowed down that cross from our Savior's hands and side. It's written in the blackest depths of hell where Jesus suffered the torture of God's wrath in our place so that we never would. That's what love looks like. And God's love for us is still active. He brought us, some of us, kicking and screaming to the baptismal font where he washed away our sins and made us his own. He stood before us today to absolve us of our sins, to announce that we are forgiven. Even the greatest sin, even the greatest sinner, and I'll be honest, in my estimation, that greatest sinner has to be me. In a few minutes, he will, his love will hand you the body and blood of his son that he gave up and he shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins, assuring you that, yes, God so loved the world, but you know what? He also loved you personally as an individual. And after you receive that sacrament of love again this morning, and as you turn around and you look at all the other faces out there, remember that Jesus did the same for them. That's the reason that we love one another. Our world doesn't know what love is and neither do we if we ever take our eyes off of Jesus because Jesus is not only the perfect example of love, he is the only reason that we can love. Are you a loving person? I don't think any of us could honestly say yes to that question. We'd have to say no, not not as Jesus demands. But even though we are not perfectly loving, we are perfectly loved. And when you are convinced, when you trust that God has loved you unconditionally, then I have no question, no doubt in my mind, that our love for each other will take care of itself. Amen.